0: Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 111, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And despite what Ravi asked me to do, I'm not going to do the introduction to the show in the episode number in the style of an old speech synthesizer. A robot stuck in a loop, like, one, 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 one. That's how we should have done it. <laughs> My throat is far too sore to do that. <laughs> because I think everyone's coming down like colds and flus at the moment, like dropping like flies. It's snowing.
1: What's going on? It's just been crazy with the weather recently. I've been trapped indoors, you know. i have kind of building a man cave at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, here in the UK, we've had this thing called the Beast from the East that's um, really cold weather that's come out from, like, Siberia and Russia and... I've even seen that. A lot of Europe's been affected by it. There was snow in Rome, I saw on Twitter the other day. It's not right, is it, for this time of year? You know, my missus said, though, she goes, if that happened in the olden days, you know, Romans used to wear togas, wouldn't they be freezing? I was like, you thought that a bit too much. (laughs) (laughs) But I think a lot of people have been spending quite a bit of time indoors this week in in this part of the world. You've been building up your new room, then. Is this going to be like a dedicated computer and console kind of room, then?
1: Yeah, so I've kind of seen on YouTube where these people have really cool kind of places that they do their videos yeah. and I, I i used to do videos years ago i was very early channel and uh, i was fig- looking at
0: that what, what year did you start on youtube i think oh god it was
1: 2008 yeah yeah but no you no, before that 2006 yeah wasn't yeah. It? I was, yeah i started no eight. yeah 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 2006 so i'm maybe one of the earliest youtube amiga channels but um i'm gonna kind of start putting my old game systems in there i'm gonna have a vr up in there and it's just gonna be so i could sit down and get stuff done really yeah Because unless you've got a space and all your systems are all over, they're they're stuck in cupboards, they're, oh God, you have to pull it all out, set it all up, and it just takes so
0: long, doesn't it? Well, I'm the same. I've got this, like, one room that, when I moved into my current place about eight years ago, everything kind of fit in there comfortably, but I'm sure that, like, games consoles and computers breed at night when we're not around. <laughs> like, suddenly, I haven't got no, any room it, or, go...
1: or you get drunk and go on eBay. That's, uh... <laughs> that's
0: probably more like yeah. it, to be fair. Or go to retro gaming shows and be like, oh, I haven't got one of them. I really need an Atari Lynx, you know what I mean? So... At the moment, we are looking at houses, and we've looked at about three or four houses in the last week to get a bigger place in the summer. And Samantha's looking at, like, you know, she's asking about upward chains. and All all the sensible things. Yeah, Yeah. you know, what's a garden like? Is there room for an extension on the kitchen? What the bathrooms like? I'm there on the top floor thinking, I could knock this wall through and make a massive gaming room. (laughs) I could put an arcade in that corner, (laughs) I'm thinking. We could have LEDs over (laughs) here and lasers here. (laughs) And she's asking the owners all about, you know, like... Sensible questions, you know. What were what, what the local transport links like? But and all what right. are the schools like? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe not that stage yet. I'm trying to put her off that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm like, no, you know, what's your broadband speed? <laughs> yeah. Can I do a speed check on your on your line? So yeah, hopefully this summer we are going to have somewhere a little bit bigger that I will be able to uh, fill again, no doubt. <laughs> That's
1: it, and you know, we'll we'll have to go and check out each of his caves. It'd be good.
0: I'm sure there'll be some videos.
1: Absolutely. oh definitely. Yeah, there'll be a few construction ones <laughs> as well <laughs> with me going around in dust. <laughs> and, yeah.
0: Well, there is obviously, like we said, with the cold weather, a lot of people have been spent lot of people been spending time indoors uh, maybe playing games this week and it's a good time to do it actually because you know you think about the games that we cover on this show and I've said it before but our show pretty much covers I've said the ZX81 to the PS2 but we've gone back like even earlier than that to like mainframe games and university networks and that kind of thing oh
1: yeah text adventures and all all the original kind of games
0: and there is one genre that I think has probably outlasted any other in terms of popularity and that will be the first person shooter
1: well, definitely. First-person shooters, at one point in the 90s, everybody wanted to have the best first-person shooter.
0: Every system was fighting
1: for it, and like, there's stuff like real-time strategy games and stuff now, but they still don't have the dominance of first-person shooters on every system. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, even like, you know, I remember adventure games were huge, and they kind of got swept aside when FPS games came along. And, you know, I probably tell the story in the show before, but I remember the first time I saw Wolfenstein 3D. It was in a uh, Staples, you know, the high street like stationery shop. Yeah, yeah. And they had like a, I think it was an Apple Newton on a desk, and it was like a PC, an Amstrad PC or something, playing Wolfenstein. Me and my friend were in there, and like we were only about like twelve or eleven or something.
1: That's what I had. I had a, I had a PC, Amstrad one, and it had Wolfenstein in it. And I just remember the PC speaker, and when the dog would attack you, it would be. <laughs> and it was really like, realistic.
0: yeah, yeah. But I was just like blown away. And then Doom came along shortly after. I actually got confused when I first heard about Doom because I didn't read about it in magazines and stuff. But I remember I was at school and like I used to be a proper nerd at school in the in like, you know, breaks, me and my friend would stay in the computer room you know, just yeah, like yeah, to yeah. mess around on the systems. And there was another kid that used to be in there as well. And he, was, uh, he said to us, you know, have you played Doom? And we thought he was saying Dune. Do you remember the like, game oh, I've played Doom yeah, like yeah, ages, yeah. like ages ago, man, ages ago. So how can you? It's really hard to get hold of. I like to get it off like a bulletin board and stuff. Does and your wait, PC
1: wait, run it? <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah, I've got the Amiga
0: 500. Of course. Cool. So yeah. It's like, can it run on that? Um, which obviously the Amiga could run Doom many years later. But Doom was probably one of the games that actually killed systems like the Atari ST and the Amiga and the Mega Drive. Because you know, everyone tried to
1: compete with it. There's a yeah. whole
0: genre of Doom clones, isn't there? So. We're
1: going to be talking about that today.
0: Yeah, well, today is going to be kind of a history of the first-person shooter. And we're going to be joined by David L. Craddock. Now, David's actually a published author, and I think it's fair to say he's probably one of the most clued-up guys in the world when it comes to FPS games and their history.
1: Totally. He's done a book on Doom, he's done a book on kind of Apple II, and you know, uh, John Romero just, like, backed this book. So. Yeah.
0: Well, his upcoming new book is going to be called Rocket Jump, colon, Quake and the Golden Age of First-Person Shooters. Now this is going to be um, covering, you know, from kind of Quake onwards, um, like you said, he's done a book on Doom before, but also covering stuff like uh, Half-Life as well, that was a huge game, and really charting how the first person shooter became this kind of juggernaut that it is today. Well, I, I think that was a really good point, because the community changed around that time, and
1: people would be doing their own modifications, they'd be doing their own rocket jumps and different kind of moves to get to parts of the level that the developers didn't want them to access and stuff. So they changed the gameplay mechanics. And also, online was a huge thing. Then multiplayer online just got insane with Quake. I still think it is. QuakeCon still one of the biggest events, isn't it?
0: Well, I think, you know, you probably look at that and you make a good point there that, you know, they kind of went hand in hand, the rise of the FPS and the internet mm. at the same time. So it'd be interesting to get his thoughts on that as well. So this is going to be a good one if you're a fan of FPS games. We're going to be talking to David L. Craddock. He's our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we wouldn't be in here this evening, keeping out of the cold. Ravi'd still be at home sawing wood. <laughs> Make it his man cave. If it wasn't for the fact that we had really generous people who allow us to come in and do this show week in, week out and bring you these amazing guests. And that is people who make donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, we said this every week. It's completely optional. Any amount, big or small, it all goes back into the running of the show and we appreciate every penny, every dime, every dollar, every euro, every cent. And this week, making the Hall of Fame and making a donation into the running of the show. Thank you so much to Stephen Marshall. Gary Hever. Glenn Larson. Anthony Ogden. Who all made donations into the running of The Retro Hour podcast. If you'd like to do the same, there is a little button you'll find right in the homepage of our website. little PayPal link there. Or if you're into cryptocurrency, you can do it that way too. It's all on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. And another emergency on the high street this week. Oh, yeah,
1: so we, we heard about Toys R Us, didn't we? Now it looks like Maplin. You remember Maplin, don't you? I was there last week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Maplin for me was kind of an essential thing because I, I was a sound engineer. Yeah. So whenever you'd have a gig... It would be like, right, we've not got this converter. Somebody run to Maplin's. That was kind of
0: a standard, you know, command. And pay 40 quid for an audio cable. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, the problem is with Maplin, I think, from having gone there for many years, I mean, it kind of replaced Tandy, really, on the high street, didn't it? It did, and uh, I I used to love the
1: kits that they did. So I I don't know if they do them anymore, but they used to do these wonderful electronic kits. And when I was a kid, you could go there and it would be like, Make a Christmas tree out of LEDs, and it would have a little like a board or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then I you remember. could solder it yourself, and all the little components would come in. And I learned a lot from Maplin's, and they also used to sell just stuff, which was really good for pirate radio, actually, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is like empty metal cases and enclosures that you could customize and stuff. When that stuff just was not available,
0: I like going into Maplin and looking around. I mean, I did it, you know, before the the panel we did at the. Um that show we did it, with um, Rob Hubbard and all those the other yeah, week, and yeah. um, David Wise, and I got there about an hour or two early and our panel was moved a bit late, and Maplin was down the road. I thought, oh, I'll have a little wander down there. First time I've been in in a few months, but I did actually enjoy the experience of walking around the shop and even do stuff like DJ equipment, and uh, there was a really big section dedicated to, like, Raspberry Pis and, um, yeah, that's you know, quite the, cool. those kind of alarm processor things. I mean, for those outside the UK, Maplin is essentially like Radio Shack is in America. Well, I, I found
1: the most important part was the component shop, yeah. and I found that the component shop got smaller and smaller and smaller and stuff like Porsches for kids and, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, just totally irrelevant stuff got bigger and gold-ended HDMI that are no different to your other HDMI. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had such a big range of those, and the component
0: shop just got
1: pushed further to the back. And yeah, it's uh, normally
0: a little desk in the corner, isn't yeah, it? You go yeah, there and yeah. if you want like some LED lights; they'll go into a little drawer and pull them and out. There's, and
1: there's one bloke there just yeah,
0: yeah. going through his catalogue, like trying to figure out what's what. But I mean, it was kind of a, a company of its time, really, I guess. And because you know, as much as I enjoyed the experience of going in there, everything's way overpriced.
1: Way over and they always have too many assistants. Wherever you went, you'd be mugged by about three mapling guys like, <laughs> yeah, what do you need? Can I help? Can I help? Can I help you? are <laughs> like, no, I can do it my
0: own. <laughs> but the thing I find is, when you go there, the, the employees are actually generally quite clued up, though, which I do like. Oh, yeah, the yeah, they've got,
1: they've got the knowledge. I remember going in there and saying, um, this was a few years ago, going, oh, I've, I need some heat sinks for my Amiga. And then having a big conversation about Commodore Amiga for a long while (laughs) with one of the assistants.
0: Yeah, they're generally not just like weekend workers who don't know anything about it. They generally are experts in electronics, which is good. But at the moment, I mean, they've got two and a half thousand employees um, in the UK and they could all be losing their jobs if this doesn't get sorted out. It's obviously not very good for uh, those involved in Maplin and... At the time of recording this, we're doing this on Tuesday evening, this week, and there's a 48-hour battle to avoid administration. Now, it looks like they actually had a buyer, uh, a company called EWM, and they actually want the current company, who are called Rutland, they want them to re- retain a stake in the new company and actually play a role in it. So that's kind of where the problem lies, whether they want to or not. Okay. So that's part of the deal. So if that falls through then they're going to run out of money by the end of this week. But if it does go through, then they should have enough money to keep going by 2020, apparently.
1: Well, I remember seeing lots of other good ones go. So, you know, seeing Maplins go, a little bit my heart would kind of be pulled out, you know. But uh, let's hope
0: by the time this podcast goes out, Maplins is still alive. Well, it's never good to see anyone losing their job as well. You know, obviously, high street retailers, there are some like massive ones that have vanished over the last few years. And as much as I like the the aspect that you can buy something cheaper online, you don't always get that kind of person-to-person feel. And there is something Definitely. nice about just browsing around a shop. Definitely. And I, I know I mentioned having free guys jumping on you, but that's usually
1: because the shops are empty. Yeah. And when they were busy, those guys are inundated, you know. So it's it, maybe they need to change their model. Maybe they need to become
0: a big component store and kind of get less of the Porsches and stuff in. <laughs> we'll see. But I think it's stuff like, I mean... Again, you mentioned there about the guys being passionate about electronics and knowing their stuff. And they do. And I've been in there actually buying stuff and they've kind of been embarrassed about the price of things. Yeah. They'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe we're selling this for that much. Like, you know, an audio cable for 12 quid or something. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if I didn't need that this morning.
1: That's it. That's yeah. the only
0: time I've ever purchased stuff at full price from there has been when I've Lumen needed it you know. yeah and you can't really run a business on emergency purchases <laughs> no. I guess can you so uh, I hope for the sake of the employees it does get saved and it would be i miss it on the high street
1: definitely I'd um, miss it, yeah. but
0: you know we'll, we'll keep you up to date on that story now, you're a big fan of chip music and pro tracker mods and that kind of thing
1: oh I absolutely love them and it's always been my dream to listen to them on the move and I, I saw a video from Miss Mad Lemon earlier this week and I was just like, oh, my God, I need this. And this is really cool. It's called the SID box. Okay. What it is is it's a custom piece of hardware. And he's he's programmed kind of raw code in there that will enable it to play lots of different formats. So we've got Amiga Pro Tracker mods. It plays SIDs. It plays Atari ST, YM files, PCM uh, WAV as well. Oh, wow. And uh eight channel S three M. He's also working on XM at the moment, but he's having a few problems with XM. They're quite big files usually. Yeah. 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 So this is just a tiny little board and on it he kind of has a, a screen that's touch screen.
0: Oh wow. Okay. And
1: then he's programmed interfaces for each thing so there's like a commodore looking interface there's like a a pro tracker style interface so when you're playing your amiga mods you'll get the bars going up and down but then he's also coded demos for it as well right so he's put some of his own demos in this little unit and uh if you check out miss mad lemon's video um it's it's kind of got no case at the moment and it's it's a very raw machine but he's 3d printing them and working out the best kind of cost and he says you know um it will be released for sale soon, uh, but for the date, he doesn't know. Just please bear with him because it's this ready. Is a one man <laughs> project, you know.
0: It's nice though, uh, and it looks like a well designed product. It's also got various little ports on there as well, so you can maybe reprogram stuff or.
1: Well, yeah, because uh, it, it emulates the SID chip as well. Right, so okay. it, it does it perfectly, and it also has firmware that you can kind of flash it with. So it has different versions of the firmware so you can add on. Like, he's put Easter eggs inside some of the um, stuff, you know.
0: You know, it's really cool as well. It says it can run 6502 code, so you could run programs on it. But also it says a SID box can be used as a basic Commodore 64 data reader as well. So if you to go around your friend's house, you can plug that in, like, you know, use it as a data set, I guess, which is pretty cool.
1: (laughs) It's crazy, yeah. And, you know, I think this is going to get bigger and bigger as more people get involved. And this is really what I want. I, I, like, love the display on it. Imagine if you could have that in your car. And you could have Outrun, and you could just press it like on the game.
0: And then <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking here at the Facebook group, and the, the header image is actually ProTracker. And you've got those kind of rainbow-colored, um, if, yeah, if yeah. That, buzz so so that's,
1: that's the interface that he's <laughs> yeah. custom made, which is Tracker UI. He's actually put that, hard-coded it in there. You need that in the dashboard of your next oh, car. Oh, God,
0: totally. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check out Maddie's video? We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, talking about drool-worthy hardware. The Commodore PET was always a sexy machine.
1: It was, yeah. It was blooming heavy, but it was a sexy machine, wasn't it? Well,
0: the original one was made of metal, I believe. Um, Like you said, very heavy machine. Very good design, though. What I always liked about the PET is the fact if you opened it up, you kind of got like like a car bonnet, that stick to hold it up and get access to the internals. Now, there is a Swedish designer called Love Holton, and he makes, um, I think we may have covered... These are the really expensive
1: machines that were like... Four, or five, yeah. six grand for like a little wooden thing.
0: So These are kind of custom-made retro gaming arcades yeah, normally, does, yeah. aren't they? Well, he's actually done a modern recreation in wood grain of the PET. Now, this is called the PET Deluxe. And this looks exactly like, you know, the original PET? Yeah. They kind of had that like typewriter kind of keyboard on there. Actually, it was more like a calculator on the first PET. And it's got a built-in uh, data set as well. Now, I'm not sure if that is actually functioning. It does look like it's a proper cassette player. But then, a- apart from the aesthetics of it, you look at it, it looks like basically uh, a Commodore PET made out of wood. Yeah, because
1: like, the keys are wooden as well, aren't they, on the, on the cassette player? Yeah, they you know? are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And from the video I've seen, that looks quite satisfying to press. And when you press down play on it, the PET logo actually lights up on the front of the case, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And it comes with um, a couple of wireless controllers that are based on, you know, the old uh, TAC2 joysticks? Yeah. Which um, they're actually really cool joysticks. I forgot about the tattoos. I have to get an eBay and get a couple of those. Uh, but inside it, that's kind of where the similarity ends because inside there, there's like it must be some like a Raspberry Pi uh, running emulators, including Commodore 64. It's got like NES emulation and stuff in there too. So that side of it's not too exciting because it's essentially just like an ARM PC running inside it. But it's more this fantastic case it is very faithful to the original just so is this going to be on general sale
1: or is it a, a one-off that he's just made for for the love of it
0: well i'm looking at this um, article on the verge and they summarize it by saying though this custom-made pet 2001 is a one-off with no indication there'll be any more for sale and uh, other products do do cost several thousands of dollars so you can't put a price on well-designed nostalgia so i don't think it's going to be for sale again i mean it's like a lot of these products they're done as like pieces of art really aren't they
1: yeah, and do you think
0: it'd be a safety
1: issue being made of wood if it
0: had the original <laughs> PET hardware in there? Like, yeah, you wouldn't any of those chips to overheat in there, would you? No, <laughs> Just, yeah, take a break while the cassette tape loads. Ooh, what's is a, what's the yeah, smell? Yeah, something's roasting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it just, it is cool, isn't it? Oh, even, totally. even if he's just doing it for the love and just to do something a bit different. I I, I do like pro- seeing projects like that. Like you said, we're never going to be able to afford them, though, so let's stop daydreaming right now. yeah. <laughs> Now, this is quite fitting, being that it is a show about first-person shooters, when we get uh, David Craddock on in the next few minutes. Tell us about Dusk Quake.
1: Yeah, so Dusk is a, a new FPS, and this is new. It's kind of August 2017, but we, we're going to talk about it because it's relevant to this. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite good. It's like a remake of Quake, but a continuation So it's done in the style of old-school Quake, which was like, you know, really low-poly models, kind of um, really dodgy textures, and they'd have, like, you know, mines and all the original fantasy kind of elements in there. Um, It has a few extra features. uh, So it has, like, you know, bunny-hopping tricks and stuff that you could do in Quake originally, but also it has loads of hidden hidden features, loads of special stuff. Uh, there's certain parts where you can move objects, half-lifestyle, put them in certain positions on the map and then be able to access hidden parts and uh, all the kind of great exploratory stuff that you used to be able to do with Quake.
0: That's the thing. There has been quite a lot of these um, old-school-looking first-person shooters released over the last couple of years. But what I love about this is looking at like you said, it's got those kind of classic polygon graphics in there. And it does look like it could have come out at like the same time as the original Quake game, but I love the fact that it's like focusing on single player gaming as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, they say a
1: co-op mode is going to come later. Yeah, uh, and they've also got online support as well. So you know, it, it it was playable and released at QuakeCon 2017, which is like the huge,
0: huge, giant Quake event. Because Strafe's been the big one, obviously that everyone's been talking about. But I think this actually looks more authentic. Um, yeah, yeah, like the texture, the look of
1: those early textures, it just looks, it's got that dark, demon-y kind of low-res yeah. <laughs> vibe, if you know.
0: Which I actually do like. I mean, the thing is, I've, I recently set up a Windows 98 PC, mm. and I've been playing a lot of the old first-person shooter games. I do find it took a bit of time to retrain my eyes to them, Especially if you're playing it on a CRT monitor, you do tend to get a bit of a headache after about like five, <laughs> ten minutes of playing them. Well, with the low frame rates. Yeah, a mixture of like low frame rates. Uh, maybe like, you know, the, the CRT flicker probably doesn't help as yes. well. And these kind of games, you, you tend to want to play them in the dark. So you've got all those elements combined. I mean, after I've been playing them for a couple of days, I'm generally all right with it. But I think there is something very different about modern games and these kind of classics. I don't know whether this is going to maybe have like modern frame rate in there because it's going to run on modern hardware, I guess. But. I think
1: they're trying to stay as true to the original as they can.
0: I should bring it out of shareware.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Pull the first level out. But well, they've it. got to have dogs in it, because, <laughs> you know, they had dogs in Wolfenstein, Doom <laughs> and Quake. So, you know.
0: Now, if maybe you haven't got original hardware anymore and you're a bit more into modern systems to play your classic games, we tend to cover these like every other week, but there's so many of them coming around. And this is thanks to uh, Funstock Retro, who uh, sent us this link this week. Uh, this is the Hyperkin... Super Retron HD console.
1: Yeah, so you know you've got your SNES Mini. Yeah. Well, this is your kind of upgraded alternative to that.
0: Which S- we knew was going to come around, didn't
1: yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, so it'll play SNES Super Famicom as well. Yeah. Um, Two premium controllers, which yet again look exactly like Super Nintendo controllers. I don't know how they're releasing these at the moment. We've covered quite a few controllers where they're just like pretty much clones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's well, it's like- even got the
0: original plug, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I guess you could use your original controllers on this probably because it's the same pinout.
1: But the cool thing about this is it has HD output and AV.
0: Okay.
1: So, you know, you can run it on your old school TVs. For nerds cool. like me want to do it CRT style. Totally. <laughs> and it's got a six-foot micro USB cable, so that's pretty big. Because, <laughs> you know, they're usually tiny, those micro USBs.
0: And you have to... Yeah, that was also a complaint on the NES mini, wasn't it? People like, yeah. you know, you, you actually got to sit, like, two feet away from the screen. So this one's six foot, so you've got a good distance to put it between the tele. And it sounds like it actually, uh, you know, having all of those different options. And it can play cartridges too then, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, 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 it's got this new pin-perfect technology which basically says the cartridges, you know, uh, it's a new standard and they're, they're high-quality pins. So when you put it in, it isn't going to get damaged so much. N- not that much blowing in the car. Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I thought you
0: do that out of habit anyway, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you naturally. It <laughs> but it does look really cool though. It's designed in the style of the North American um super nintendo isn't it like kind of palmer violet i think they call yeah. the buttons on it but i actually think it looks nicer than the original super nintendo in the u.s market which was a bit ugly let's be fair um but i, I think this looks a really neat little package yeah but, it's got a uh, oh uh, ntsc to power switch as well which is quite cool and i do like the fact that this is essentially a system to play the original games in. it's not running sd cards and all that no. it hasn't got built-in games and stuff so i mean you could get an everdrive for right? i imagine that would work But it's essentially just a recreation of the Super Nintendo that's probably going to last you another 25, 30 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, they've got pre-orders now on the site as well. And it's only 80 quid.
0: No bad at all. So if you want to find out more about that, I'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. And that will be where you can download next week's podcast. Thank you so much for checking out episode number (laughs) (laughs) 111111 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next week, available from all of your favourite podcast clients. We're on uh, Stitcher Overcast. I forgot to mention that last week. Yeah, yeah. and and give us some more
1: iTunes reviews, please. We've had some nice ones, but we need a few more. I think we're about 89 reviews, so it'd be really nice to try and hit 100 for the next... Few
0: episodes, you know, especially because when uh, this show comes out today, we are putting in an entry for the British Podcast Awards. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we went last year, didn't we, to the British Podcast Awards? Didn't get nominated. It was free re- bar, though. Come on, free it was, bar. which was like you know that was worth ticket price in itself, and. I think this year, though, we're going to go along. Whether we win anything or not, it's always good to hang out with other podcasters and stuff. So if any of the retro gaming podcasts or any of the po- anyone listens to this podcast is going down, I think it is up to the public as well, though, isn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. So whether you're in the industry or not, I mean, if you want to come down and hook up with us on that, it's always a fun night. Last year as well, it was... Um, very focused on the big podcasts. you Adam Buxton's and Edith Bowman's and that kind of yeah. thing. So we're hoping they might swap things up a little bit this year. Yeah,
1: give us little boys a chance.
0: <laughs> so if there's any way you guys can help, we'll obviously let you know in next week's show. But yeah, we do appreciate any help we can get. And uh, you can find out more, obviously, all about that on our website, theretrohour.com. Right, let's get the history of first-person shooters with this week's special guest, David L. Craddock. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. listening to the Retro Owl podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, David Craddock. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on now. We're going to talk all about your new book very soon, but um, obviously this show is going to be a bit of a special about first-person shooters, which I think is probably one of the most successful genres in video game history. You know, despite, it's still so big today, despite the fact they've been around like over 25 years. But I thought, you know, it might be quite nice to go kind of, right back to the start of your gaming experiences and find out where it all started for you I mean do you remember your earliest memory of video games or computers
2: my earliest memory of video games is pulling one over on my parents so that I could start playing earlier than I was allowed to uh, my mom made a rule that on Saturdays I couldn't I couldn't get up before seven or eight and start playing she you know didn't want me up at 4 a.m which is what I would have done and she said now I, I just gotten an, an Atari 2600 or Atari VCS Junior from my Aunt Tammy for my birthday. And I was so excited about it. And she said, Now just sleep in a little tomorrow and then you can get up and play. But by 4 or 5 in the morning, I was just squirming, tossing, and turning. Couldn't wait to get up and play more adventure. So I snuck all through the house and changed the time ahead on all the clocks <laughs> so that if I got so that if I got caught, it would look like I was totally within bounds. So I went downstairs to the basement where the Atari was hooked up and I played. And then I came back up at what was really 9 o'clock, totally exhausted and ready for a nap. And my mom... Came downstairs and she said, Oh, it's just now nine o'clock. What are you already doing up? And I had forgotten to get her alarm clock, but luckily she didn't, uh, I didn't get in trouble for it or anything. She knew I was excited to play. Um, I think my, the second memory after that is uh, going down the street to my friend Kim's house. I knocked on her door and her mom. Answer and I said, you know, can Kimmy come out and play? And her mom said, no, she's she's downstairs playing the Nintendo. She kind of said it like that, like it was this new word, and she was trying to get the feel of it. And I I went down Kim's basement steps and I heard the the Super Mario Brothers, you know, World One One Overworld theme song and was just totally hooked. I spent the next nine months doing household chores, counting pennies, nickels, dimes and quarters to save up for my own NES. And it it took a while, but I eventually bought it on my own. I was really excited.
0: Sounds like you were pretty gripped by games at a very young age then. I mean, it, it must have seemed like something magical did it when you first got into them.
2: Yeah, it really was. Everything about it was magical, because when I finally got the money for the NES, it was really late, and the stores were closed, so I I was really disappointed, but I went to bed, and my mom got me up early before school the next morning and said, hey, Terry, this was uh, my stepdad, went and got you your NES. He's downstairs playing it, and I, I ran down to the basement, and there it was. He was hooked up playing Duck Hunt, and we had a blast with that before school started, so it was always just this really you know video games are these virtual worlds and i'm i'm very i am susceptible to their immersion gaming has always been my me time activity i don't really play much multiplayer because i kind of like to explore and experience these worlds on my own time and on my own terms so what were your kind of favorite games back then what were you playing all the time um i started with consoles. And I played, I, I'm, I'm still a Nintendo fanboy, self-admitted. Uh, I love Mario. Probably my favorite series is Zelda. I loved Breath of the Wild last year. Um, but soon after that, I discovered programming. I took a programming course. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. It was a summer course at the local middle school. And I learned how to program on an Apple II. And that was even more magical to me, learning that I could learn how to write these arcane commands that would once compiled or interpreted whatever the case may be uh, took me to my own virtual worlds but when I wasn't programming um, I I was getting more and more into computer games I've always kind of flip-flop I spent a lot of time with consoles a lot of time with the PC but I think it was around I was maybe 10 or 11 and my mom was taking a medical transcription class and on, on days when I was sick, I had to go to class with her. I wasn't allowed to stay home because, again, she knew I had just play hooky and play video games. So I was sitting in the back of uh, the adult education classroom with her while my mom and the other students were transcribing or studying medical terms. And my mom's teacher was this older, bigger lady named Sally. And I heard Sally say, David, come up here. And I went up to the front of the classroom and she's playing Wolfenstein 3D at her desk. And I thought that was the coolest game I'd ever seen. And I was especially enthralled by the fact that, you know, first of all, she wasn't playing with a controller; she was using just her keyboard. But also, the sound and the the speed of the graphics processing were just incredible. I immediately recognized this is something that couldn't be uh, played on a console, or at least the ones that were out at that time. So that's I kind of always, like I said, a flip flop. I have certain games I like to play on. Consoles, anything really fast-paced and third-person, such as Dark Souls, Zelda, of course I play on consoles, Uh, but PC games, I love first-person shooters and real-time strategy games, so I kind of look at at both platforms as offering something very special and unique, even though today there's so much cross-pollination, you can pretty much play anything on a PC, even if you're using an emulator for the older consoles.
0: I think you made a really interesting point there about the, the PC and first-person shooters. So I, I've got a pretty similar memory to you, and I mentioned it a bit earlier on in today's show, um, that I remember vividly seeing Wolfenstein 3D. For me, it was in a stationary shop, and they had a an Amstrad PC uh, playing it, and you could go and have a go in the game, and it, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And that kind of really vivid memory of this world that you could explore in three dimensions really stuck wi- with me. But again, I think, do you think the FPS played a big part in the revival Of the PC platform for gaming?
2: I definitely do because I, you know, keeping up with consoles and being a Nintendo fan, I went from the NES to the SNES to the N64 and so on. And I would always try first person shooters on consoles, but they just felt so clunky and and sluggish and this isn't me you know proudly displaying my pc master race card again there were just certain types of games i recognized you know what i'd I'd rather pay you know platformers for instance with a controller but for first person shooters i need my pc but as um i think as technology and consoles got more advanced i started recognizing hey you know consoles can be good platforms for first person shooters if they if the developers work to adapt the controls or, b- or build console controls from the ground up for the system or the controller that they're using rather than just trying to cram a PC game onto uh, a console.
1: Well, uh, kind of let's go back and look at the first FPSs because I know a lot of people kind of claim this game and that game was the first FPS. I, I f- Earliest I've kind of seen was a 3D monster maze and I think Robocop had some early stuff in it. What's, in your opinion, the uh, first FPS?
2: I think I can do better than opinion. I can get pretty close to fact because coincidentally, um, two summers ago, I was researching a book that I published just last September called Breakout, How the Apple II Launched the PC Gaming Revolution. And in the course of talking to developers of Apple II games for that book, I talked to Dave LeBling, who was one of the programmers of Zork, and before Zork, he worked on a game called Maze, also known as Maze War, which was a multiplayer first-person shooter that ran on MIT's mainframes. And it was it was very simple, you know, vector-based, line-based graphics for corridors. And I think the player avatars were just floating eyes. I don't believe he even saw their weapon, but he said this was actually up and running. Uh, he and a few other students at, at MIT's uh, Model Railroad Club, I don't remember if they were in... The MRC, but they were um, part of uh, MIT's computer science division, they could actually deathmatch together. They'd run around mazes looking for each other, and and that was really, really fun to hear about. It was kind of uh, a sidebar in my book because I was focused more on Zork and and the Apple II port, but I I was really glad to get to hear about one of those early, those uh, primordial FPS experiences.
0: Well, yeah, it kind of sounds like all the elements of first-person shooters were there then.
2: Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, other than, like, running around picking up weapons. Uh, I think th- I think that they could even camp. <laughs> you know, you only had one weapon, so you just kind of waited for someone to come running around the corner and then pop them right between the... Well, I guess they were an eye, so I don't know where you pop them. But um, uh, it was it was really interesting to see that that really set the template for games that really didn't come into their, their four for another 10, 15 years.
0: Well, looking back at the early first-person shooters, um, they kind of had quite innovative ways of creating graphics long before 3d acceleration i mean i remember like you know games based on bitmap graphics and like i said vector graphics as well i mean are there any examples that come to your mind of like really innovative ways that they did of doing these 3d effects
2: i think for me um wolfenstein 3d being the the first first person shooter i was exposed to really stands out because i didn't know then like i said i was only 10 or 11 i wasn't really aware that what I was seeing was a sprite and, and that the game wasn't actually truly 3D, it was just kind of a facsimile, but it just, uh, I think Wolfenstein 3D was incredible because of its speed. There had been FPS games before, uh, John Carmack and John Romero and the guys from it had made several of them, such as HoverTang 3D and Catacomb 3D, but Wolfenstein was so fast, it had texture mapping, it was just that game seems like it was built for speedrunning. And it was really I think what I what I took away from Wolfenstein 3D were two things was the speed And then also the use of the Sound Blaster 16 I just gotten a Sound Blaster 16 And it was such a huge upgrade from the the uh, the grating bells and whistles and shrieks of the PC internal speaker
0: (laughs) I think if anything, you know that those early FPS games probably did more for the sales of sound cards than anything else really
2: Absolutely. I mean FPS games are these huge hardware drivers Uh, all through high school and college when my friends or I would upgrade our computers and get a new computer. Uh, and I, I think this is still a rule today. When you want to show off new hardware, you buy the latest and greatest first person shooter and you invite all your friends over so they can stare enviously at, at your 60 frames per second frame rate or whatever you're getting or your new <laughs> G, you know, GeForce uh, NVIDIA TI card, whatever it may be. It's just, uh, they're absolutely showpiece games for hardware. Well,
0: after Wolfenstein, we got got into the game that really defined the FPS as a genre that's here to stay. And I think it's fair to say a game that did change the world. What are your earliest memories of Doom then? Do you remember when you first saw it and what impact did that game (laughs) have?
2: Doom, I have a really funny story about that. I heard about Doom in the most unlikely of places, or maybe the most likely of places, and that was Sunday school. Uh, (laughs) I was sitting in the back of my Sunday school classroom with a friend named Aaron and our teacher was talking about something or other, but I wasn't paying attention because Aaron was telling me about this game called Doom. And it's not like today where when you talk about a game, you say, oh, it's from the studio that made this. You don't really connect those dots. Back then, we had no idea that the Doom guys had also made Wolfenstein 3D. He was just telling me about this game where you get shotguns or rocket launchers, and you go to hell, and you're killing demons. I just had to play this game. So I remember... um, After that church, I went back to my mom's house, and my friend Mike, his dad, ran a computer hardware and software store in our local mall. And so I got my mom to take me, and uh, sure enough, there right on the shelf was the Doom shareware episode, Knee Deep in the Dead. And I played that game over and over and over, and it, it always... It, that's that's around the time when the concept of shareware clicked with me. I would uh, exit Doom and get dumped back at a DOS prompt. And for a while, I didn't really pay attention to the splash screen after you exit the game. But one day I looked up and read it, and I, I realized, oh, wait, I can call this 800 number and get more Doom? I, I thought the shareware episode was it. And I probably still to this day would have been satisfied with just those uh, nine levels because they were so fun to play. Uh, And So Doom to me was really this – it was a gateway drug into upgrading my computer because I played Doom on a 386 – I think maybe a 486, 33 megahertz computer. And so the game chugged a little unless I hit F5 to enable low detail, which kind of made it look like a PlayStation 1 game. and i remember talking with my uncle my uncle brad has been a big influence on me uh he's a father figure but also he's been this purveyor of computers and software he worked um in silicon valley he ran his own networking company he even worked for blizzard north the diablo creators for several years um and i would say you know i'm playing this game called doom but i'm not sure how to make it go faster so he would he sent me a new computer He sent me books on basic programming, which I uh, put two and two together and realized, oh, that's the language I started to learn on the Apple II in that summer course years ago. And uh, from there on, I was really focused on not just playing Doom, but on learning how to make it and my computer run faster. And that kind of went forward to other PC games when I would get them. I was as interested in learning how PCs, what made them tick, what I could do to upgrade them, how I could make my games run faster, making boot disks just for fun to kind of experiment with config.sys and autoexec.bat. So that's that's something I I actually really miss about PC gaming and will always associate with Doom. I think it's nice that these days installing and running a PC game is as easy as clicking the purchase button on Steam, waiting for it to download and then running it. But I really miss having to kind of roll up my sleeves and, and get into boot disks and figure out, okay, how can I eke out every last drop of performance from the hardware that I have here?
0: You really had to work for it.
2: <laughs> I did, I did, but it was always worth it. It was such a thrill when I would boot up Doom and, and see the frame rate increase or graphics look sharper. And then I got into mods from there. I played Barney Doom and Power Rangers Doom, and I thought that's what really cemented PC gaming for me, as far as tinkering with software, not just hardware, the fact that I could download these files that changed the game, that was also, again, something that I realized, well, I can't do this on console. so that's something that sets the PC apart. I love that story you had about your friend at school um, you know, talking to you
0: about Doom. Because for me, from, you know, from my experience, obviously there were very popular video games before it, but Doom kind of came around just before the rise of the Internet and in the mainstream. Would you agree that that was maybe one of the first games that kind of went viral?
2: I, I would absolutely say that the fact that it was shareware, meaning you know you didn't have to do what I did and pay five bucks or whatever I paid for the disc, uh, the shareware disc. The fact that you could just download it and install it and play over half a dozen levels was huge, and that was the first game that you hear in retrospect. It just brought it brought university networks, business networks, home networks, just brought the, all these networks to their knees because everyone was deathmatching to the point where. I would talk with university students and they, you know, I, I was interviewing them for a, a, Doom, a book-sized article on, on the new Doom that I wrote last year. And part of it was uh, kind of revisiting classic Doom. And they said, yeah, you know, we weren't allowed to play in the, in the uh, university computer labs because people were in there trying to get real work done and we just wanted the deathmatch. Was it
1: the kind of first time that you saw modifications of games made by community members and users of the game rather than the uh, company?
2: Definitely. In fact, uh, at first, I didn't even really understand that, like Power Rangers Doom, for example, was a modification made by someone like me. I thought, oh well, this must be a free game that Id Software put out. And then I bought the Doom Hackers Guide. I think that was written by Hank Lukert. I might be getting his name wrong, but it was this huge doorstop-size book that came with a CD that had all the hacking and uh, level-building tools talked about in the book on the disc and i just i sat there making doom levels and i i've never really been good at building levels i'm much more i will i will consume your content i want you to make it but i was always really fascinated that anyone could extend the life of their favorite pc game by just downloading these free tools and building their own levels
1: well a whole kind of genre was created and these were kind of a well they were called doom clones back then Um, but they were trying to kind of compete with Doom. And as Amiga users, and we had Atari users and stuff, and we were all in despair when Doom came out because we were trying to get our system to match it. Have you seen any uh, original ideas and concepts that came out of those kind of Doom clones?
2: That is actually why I love the 1990s uh, in terms of the first-person shooter genre because there were a lot of companies who, yes, they, they did just turn out, doom clones there was, might be very little difference between their game and doom but there are other companies such as apogee and 3d realms where they would put out games like rise of the triad and duke nukem 3d where i learned uh interviewing them from my latest book that they were specifically trying to avoid emulating doom because they realized you know what we make great games but its software isn't a of its own so rather than try to walk in their footsteps let's take some uh, let's, let's pave our own path and so I think probably the most innovative 2.5D uh, Doom clone that really wasn't a Doom clone was probably Duke Nukem 3D or maybe Star Wars Dark Forces. The fact that all those games really had in common with Doom was you had a few of the same weapons, but there were some, so much different interactions. Star Wars Dark Forces had, had puzzles and more of a story. And Duke Nukem 3D, I had as much fun blowing holes in walls and and using urinals and actually drinking out of shattered toilets to regain health just kind of interacting with the world as I did running around shooting the pig cops and all the aliens
1: Well I find the story of Ken Silverman's build engine really fascinating and kind of the involvement with John Romero as well, uh, it's
2: kind of like a, a big community of everybody helping each other It really is and that's what I, that's what I liked about it as well because I would find out that you know, even though these guys, there was no Twitter or Facebook, a lot of these guys would run in the same communities. And so they would get together and rather than, you know, having to have a mediator there to tell them to put away the knives, they didn't look at themselves as competitors. They were very interested in sharing ideas and comparing notes and just kind of encouraging each other uh, to, to make games that maybe were better than their own. Because especially like in John Romero's case, that guy just loves games. He loves making games, but he also loves playing games and he's always said you know if someone out there has an idea to make a game that uh, that i that's similar to one that i've made then they should make it anyway because i want to play it i want to play these games i can't make everything
1: it's great as well because ken silverman i think he was like 14 or 15 at the time and john romero (laughs) was like i'm gonna come and help
2: you get your engine really (laughs) good you know Right, right, and I believe Romero for a lot, uh, a lot of those interactions, he kind of went through Ken Silverman's dad because again, this this kid was just a teenager.
0: Well, obviously, around that time, everything wanted to be Doom, and we did see some re- really weird FPS games come out in the mid nineties. I mean, you might remember stuff like uh, Super Noah's Ark 3D and Check's oh, yeah. Quest. I think was given away on on the front of a cereal box. I mean, are there any kind of weird ones that you remember or you've researched?
2: Yeah, there, there were so many. There were just droves, and a lot of them were kind of kind of forgettable but two of two of my favorites because again they they had such interesting themes were Redneck Rampage and Blood. Blood was just this really dark gritty game that was actually really hard. It was of course made with the Build engine. And Build engine games like Duke 3D and Shadow Warrior and Blood were pretty darn difficult even on the first level, even on the easiest difficulty. So it was a fun challenge and it was also It kind of felt like I was dabbling in the occult almost because, yeah, you know, blood has shotguns, but also has voodoo dolls and things like that. It was really interesting. And then Redneck Rampage was, yeah, you know, you're just some hick in in the backwoods running around, chasing chickens, shooting things up. It was a really fun theme.
0: Drinking whiskey and eating pork rinds for your health.
2: (laughs) That's right. That's right. As rednecks do. That's what that game taught me. I learned so much. And that engine was really developed by then. It
1: had, like, stack sectors and stuff. And uh, these were kind of later developments. I remember uh, William Shatner's Tech War as well was a big game on that.
2: Yeah, and as a teenager, this was a little later, but I remember, I don't know if you guys have played Predator, but as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy, I remember when I looked down, I saw my character's breasts. And that was this huge deal because I was like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to see that in a video game. But it, besides being titillating for teenagers, it also gave me more sense of inhabiting a virtual body than other games such as Duke 3D, Quake, and Unreal did. Because in that, you know, you're just kind of a disembodied hand and arm. So Predator what, it was the first time I felt like I was in a full-bodied character. Okay. Well, outside of like the
0: mainstream kind of FPS games, I mean, obviously every everyone wanted to get in on the FPS action then, and the consoles did kind of catch up eventually. I mean, for me, one of my you know quite obscure games, I guess, uh, that was a favourite FPS game was um, Alien vs Predator on the Atari Jaguar. Um, There was a game called Gloom I used to play on the Amiga as well, and obviously there was kind of like Doom and stuff ported to the 3DO. I mean, do you remember any uh, kind of maybe non-mainstream FPS games or obscure ones that you were a fan of?
2: I wouldn't classify this as obscure necessarily, but I always liked Kingpin. I believe that was a, I can't remember if it was built on the Quake engine or Unreal Tech, but it was a game where you were in a gang and kind of running the streets, and I thought that was a really interesting concept, and it had more of a story to it as well, but it was, a, it was a really interesting theme, and I had a lot of fun with that game. It was a very dark game, wasn't it, that one? <laughs> it was a very dark game. It was one of those, I, I'm pretty sure it was an M, M-rated game. If not, it certainly should have been. But, the, you know, just a lot of swearing, a lot of heavy themes, um, stuff that games uh, really didn't explore back then. Because I think one, um, one sign or symptom, I guess, of being a Doom clone was that, you know, Doom wasn't exactly known for for telling an epic uh, war and peace-sized story. It was very simple, and so were a lot of Doom clones. So the fact that Kingpin took extra steps such as that that foul language to further immerse you in the world was a pretty good example of lore and world-building for that genre at the time. So do you think uh, the FPS genre would have developed at such a speed without
1: id Software?
2: I, I certainly... You know, uh, that's a great question because uh, Unreal was certainly moving, um, uh, not Unreal, but Epic Games was certainly moving in that direction. But you added the qualifier, develop its speed. I don't think it would have evolved as quickly um, because what was interesting about its Software was John Carmack and John Romero, I think, got the most press because they were known names. And and uh, since then, especially in David Kushner's book, Masters of Doom, they've really become almost the the figureheads of that company in that time. But it really was such a team effort. Everyone at id Software loved games and and played to their strengths. John Romero was a, a good programmer, but he ceded a lot of that role to Carmack because Carmack was great at writing engines. And what Romero did well was write tools and make great levels. Uh, Tom Hall was a great designer. Kevin Cloud and Adrian Carmack were great artists. It really was this perfect storm of guys with unique talents, some crossover, but also letting each of them play to their strengths. And, I mean, first-person shooters just evolved by leaps and bounds with every game they made. Well,
1: how much did multiplayer change things? Because, you know, you had your single player before, and now you have to get a whole
2: multiplayer mode in there as well. That was was huge. Uh, I think one of the, the most famous stories is of the day John Carmack got Deathmatch code working and he had two computers, two monitors, and he went and he he started a multiplayer session, joined it on both machines and looked over at one and saw his character moving on the other screen. And Romero just kind of freaked out and they sat down and played Deathmatch and pretty soon the whole office got pulled in. I think that was huge for two reasons. First of all, going back to MIT and Mazor... Sure, those guys were playing Deathmatch, but unless you were an MIT student, you didn't have access to, you know, room-sized computers or or even at their smallest refrigerator-sized computers. And second, multiplayer on consoles was fun, but you still – if I wanted to play Street Fighter II on my Super Nintendo, I still had to have someone in the same room on the same screen willing to play with me. The fact that, that you and I could play Doom from anywhere was absolutely huge. And then, obviously, give rise to LAN parties. You know, we all remember the days
0: in the mid-90s of carrying our, like, 486 or Pentium One tower cases and those massive CRTs. And you just get guys that haul up in rooms, like, all together for the entire weekend. I mean, do you you remember, did you go to LAN parties back then? You got any memories of those?
2: It's funny. uh, My three closest friends from high school and I started a tradition, I think, when we were sophomores, where over New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, we would all carry our computers to this one guy, Jeff's house, We'd set up, his mom would cook snacks, we'd take a a break to watch the ball drop and toast the new year, and then we'd go back to playing land games until three, four, five in the morning. We still do that. Um, For a while, we each lived out of state. Pardon me, one of us even lived out of the country. But as of 2011, we reinstituted the tradition, and for the last uh, six years, we've been doing that. every. New Year's Eve, we we meet in town, which is my hometown's about 30 minutes away. I go there and I carry my computer and we stay up all night playing games. Well, One game that
0: really did um, kind of push forward in the, the multiplayer aspect was obviously when 1996 came around and we got Quake. I mean, was that much of a changing point for the FPS?
2: It was because even though in terms of game design, it was basically, at the time, that would have been Doom 3. It was very straightforward, very fast-paced, very shoot-everything-that-moves, but it was huge for a couple of reasons. First of all, it had always been very good about sharing uh, not only source code, but just kind of encouraging people to to use their techniques and, and create tools based on their code to make levels, but Quake introduced the scripting language Quake C, that allowed a lot of versatility. That's where uh, t- uh, Team Fortress came from. It was a mod uh, and scripted almost entirely in C and in Quake C. But also as an eSport, Quake really caught on. Uh, there was a famous competition where um, uh, Dennis uh, Fong, aka Thresh, won a, won a Deathmatch tournament and received John, one of John Carmack's Ferraris as a grand prize. It was really one of the first eSports. And stemming from that, we had the rise of uh, gaming clans and uh, more official meetups and tournaments with money on the line.
1: Well, the thing I love about Quake is how the community took it on board. You mentioned Team Fortress there, and that was a a complete mod that became a full game.
2: How many different game modes and stuff came out? Are Are there any particular ones you remember? There's one that was crazy... I'm I'm blanking on the name. I think it might have been called Death Race, but it was in built in Quake C, and it was a third-person racing game. It had nothing in common with Quake's first-person shooter formula. It was a it was a racing game. And in fact, uh, I think that mod came out while ID was still working on Quake Two, and Sandy Peterson, uh, one of the level designers at ID, thought it was so innovative and was actually kind of disappointed that. It was staying the course and creating first-person shooters that were, you know, still following in Doom's footsteps. Very minimal story, shoot everything that moves, don't think, just shoot. And he said, you know, guys, there, there's these racing games coming out, all these crazy mods. People are, are making more creative games with our tech than, than we are. We should be doing more stuff like this.
1: Yeah, because I remember seeing Quake Chess, and there was a you know mm-hmm, Quake mm-hmm. kind of parkour and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it was it was really interesting, and it really speaks to how powerful uh, id Tech two Quake's engine was. The fact that you could make virtually any type of game with it didn't have to be a shooter. I mean, it's kind of like the users exploring that world. You know, the title
1: of your book is Rocket Jump, and a kind of the idea of a rocket jump is uh, not using the traditional method but achieving something new.
2: Yeah, there was there was so much freedom in Quake's engine. And in fact, the rocket jump was something the id guys did not know about. They didn't balance the game that way. And I think they said they heard about it on an IRC channel and watching someone's recorded Quake demo. And when they went and tested it and they realized, yeah, you know, by just pointing the rocket launcher at your feet, jumping and firing, you can clear levels in, in ways we never foresaw. They were so amazed that people had figured out how to do this.
0: Well, speaking of how versatile the Quake engine was, we had a gold source come out of that uh, a couple of years later. And then, you know, the next big revolution in first-person shooters, when 98 came around, Half-Life was introduced to the world by Valve. Uh, What did you think of Half-Life when you first saw it then?
2: Half-Life was amazing, and I think it's it's up there with Doom as my favorite first-person shooter Ever. Because you're right. That really was kind of the next milestone. Um, you were no longer just running through levels, shooting zombies and searching for key cards. You were interacting with scripted events, using weapons in really unique ways. And in fact, one of the chapters in Rocket Jump, I interviewed one of Half-Life's programmers, and he talked about the way they licensed uh, ID Tech 2 from id, gutted about 70% of it, and rewrote it into the engine that became gold source and it was really interesting to hear about how they they used the foundation but they ended up uh, kind of breaking apart most of the foundation and rebuilding it themselves
0: yeah i love the fact that it did have a proper story in there as well because we did get to a stage where It started to feel a bit samey around the mid-90s. Every game was kind of... It felt a bit like a mindless kind of shooter. And I was a big fan of adventure games, and they kind of went by the wayside. But Half-Life kind of combined the two and brought that back.
2: Yeah, that that was a huge staple. And I I really liked the story in Half-Life as well. And I also liked that it felt kind of extemporaneous, even though you relearn later that, all these are scripted events. And what happened is I stepped over an invisible line... Uh, To trigger the event For example, one of my favorites is You're you're going through the laboratory And you hear two scientists arguing over the Gauss cannon And one goes, no wait, don't, not yet Boom, and then they blow at a wall And blood and bones spray everywhere And there's the Gauss cannon lying there And it was interesting storytelling Because you pick up this weapon And you get a sense of power, but also danger You realize that the two scientists Who were playing with it blew themselves up And so you, you have to be careful Using this dangerous weapon Because it could be as dangerous to you too Yeah, because it added that
1: cinematic kind of feel. Do you feel that's why it was so fondly remembered?
2: I think so. I think the important thing is um, I hate it when games play cinematics and take control away from me. I think where Half-Life succeeded was it not only told a story, but it told a story without ever taking you out of Gordon's shoes. Well, I'll, I'll correct that. There's one instance about maybe three quarters through where you get jumped by these sorts of ninja guards and they take your weapons. You have to get them all back. But with with that exception, I believe Half-Life kept you planted in that HEV suit and you just you felt like you were Gordon the whole time because there were so few interruptions and breaks in in that, in that embodying that character. And you were kind of not endlessly going around collecting key
1: cards. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> right, it kind of were, was a bit more intelligent.
2: Yeah. It, it, oh, yeah, the AI was great. One of my favorite stories is I, I was fighting a group of um, Combine soldiers. I think that was Half-Life 2. I don't remember what they were called. And Half-Life 1, but I was uh, I was fighting them with a shotgun. I ducked behind a crate to reload, and then I heard a clink, and I looked down, and there's a grenade at my feet. So I I jumped out, and there they had flanked me. There was a whole line of them opening fire on me, and they had they had uh, smoked me out. And um, what what else Half-Life did really well, I thought, was the fact that the story seemed to change. the The first objective was these soldiers are are infiltrating Black Mesa to exterminate any survivors so no one can talk about the work that went on there. But then, as the story goes on and the alien presence is growing, you see written on a wall, forget about Freeman. You realize the soldiers are in over their heads and you're no longer the objective. They're just trying to survive, just like you are. Now, one of the biggest memes on the internet
0: everywhere you go, it's kind of like we've been teased with this for years now. Half-Life 3. You always see that on Reddit and everything. Half-Life 3 confirmed... Based on your research and your thoughts,
2: then do you think we are going to see the third part, guys? I have good news for you. This might be breaking news. I don't know if you've heard this, but Gordon Freeman's return has been confirmed. Uh, he's going to be a playable character in the PC version of Final <laughs> Fantasy Fifteen. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how that happened. I don't know who put that those two those two properties <laughs> together. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I haven't heard anything about it because Valve is mum on that part. Here's my theory. Um, When – well, so I like to write books and articles about the 1980s and 1990s, uh, sort of the Wild West period of video game development. And one thing that was unique about games back then is a lot of people didn't have experience in the industry. They liked games or maybe they played Pac-Man once or twice in a pizza parlor. But otherwise, their credentials for starting at these companies like Blizzard and id was, hey, I like games. Maybe hire me. Mm And as the industry grew, for example, in my book series, Stay Well and Listen, the book two deals with Diablo 2. And what Blizzard North noticed was they would get uh, resumes from a lot of people who had played Warcraft or Starcraft or Diablo. And that's kind of how game development works now. You'll see a lot of people get into the industry and they'll have their eye on the dream job of working at the company that made the game they loved. Which brings me to Half-Life 3. I think that someone at valve, at least one person is probably toiling away at half life three at all times. If for no other reason than they played half life one and or two and they loved them and they would love to be the person who, who answers the internet's please. And, and leads development of half life three. But, you know, I think it was last year, um, Mark Laidlaw, one of valves writers who is no longer there. There are hardly any writers at valves anymore because you really don't need to write lores for hats. Um, he published uh, a a general story overview for what Half-Life 2, Episode 3, or maybe Half-Life 3 would have been. Mm. And for a lot of people, that was kind of the last nail in the coffin. Uh, The fact that that was published made them think, well, if Valve is still going to do it, they're going to have to come up with a new story because now people know how it would have ended with Mark at the helm. Um, But I I don't know. I guess I'd say never say never. I, I, I do think it's a shame that Valve is so... Focused on uh, microtransactions and games that just kind of have this endless income loop with microtransactions. I would love to think that there's still someone there, like I said, toiling away on a single player game. Um, and it's given rise to another meme, which is that Valve can't count to three. You know, we're waiting on Team Fortress 3, Left 4 Dead 3, Portal 3, Half Life 3. It's really funny how they all this. <laughs> All this work just kind of stopped <laughs> after the first sequel to these properties. So I hope it comes out, and I think there's always a chance that it could. In fact, I think one of the reasons Valve is mum on it is maybe they will never want to say never. Maybe they're thinking that we never want to say Half-Life 3 was canceled ages ago, or we have no plans to make it, because at any given time they could change their minds and decide to do it. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
0: I wonder, though, if they look a bit like uh, Duke Nukem Forever, you know, how long that was hyped and what a disappointment it was when it came (laughs) out, and maybe it can never live up to the hype.
2: Sure, and I think that's a possibility, too. You know, I mean, you make a great point. They might have themselves in a situation where, gee, no one's worked on this for so long that even if we were to put it out, just for the sake of putting it out, everyone would just kind of take a big crap on it. But as a game historian... I can't help but say, you know what, even though Duke Nukem Forever was not very good, to put it mildly, at least it came out. We can always say that it it was finally finished and released, and I would love the same thing for Half-Life 3. Well, FPS has always had kind of Easter eggs in, and
1: have you seen any amazing Easter eggs or any particularly crazy ones? You
2: know, the one that I didn't know about until just recently, and I discovered it, during an interview with, it was either Tom Hall or John Romero for my book, Rocket Jump. And I was so surprised I actually loaded Wolfenstein up to try it, was in the game, I can't remember where off the top of my head, but you can actually discover a Pac-Man minigame. You're in a maze and ghosts will chase you. I believe that's how it works. And I I had never known about that for 10, 15, 20 years. I thought that was the the coolest thing. And it's it's funny because it's not really often talked about. You know, everybody knows about john romero's severed head and the last level of doom 2 and secrets like that but you really don't hear a lot about the wolfenstein 3d pac-man hybrid that it kind of snuck in there i remember there was a weird fps inside
1: xl as well which had a few um developers uh, faces on there as
2: well <laughs> uh, <a> little <laughs> easter egg yeah that, that's such a fun thing and i i think that just to me is is um i mean obviously easter eggs still exist but Putting, being able to sneak in levels, uh, developer faces, a whole new minigame such as Pac-Man and Wolf 3D is really emblematic of a bygone era because nowadays games are so expensive to make and teams so large that you might not have the time or the budget to make something secret and fun, which is kind of a shame.
0: Well, the genre of first-person shooters, uh, you know, going back to the uh, initial popularity of Wolfenstein 3D, it's fair to say it's been one of the longest-lasting Predominant genres in video games, and all these years later, more than twenty-five years later, it is still as popular as ever, if not more popular today. Why do you think it's had such a lasting appeal to gamers?
2: Uh, that's a great question. I think there are there are several answers. I think the first is like I like I said earlier, it, first-person shooters really are technical showpieces. They're they're fast and they're built with cutting-edge tech. That's one of their selling points for developers as well as consumers so i think that uh, you know again when people want to show off their new computer or their new graphics card or their extra ram they slot it in they get a first person shooter i think it's also because they are so immersive the first person perspective uh really puts you in the shoes or boots or uh, talent feet or whatever the case may be of characters in a way that third person games uh really don't they're just so immersive and they used to be I think for the last 10 years or so, with the advent of Call of Duty Modern Warfare and the return of Battlefield, um, we're seeing more militaristic themed shooters, which doesn't really appeal to me because I really like more of the fantastic, and there were so many examples of that during the 90s. But I think even today, they can still be vehicles of of creativity. Um, One of my favorite shooters, I almost said recent shooters, although it's not so recent, is the original Bioshock. I feel like. People compare Bioshock, they, they they name it as a spiritual successor to System Shock 2. I would also add Half-Life because kind of like Half-Life, it took a lot of video game systems and tropes and actually threaded a story through them. Um you know, there's a certain point in, in Bioshock, I know it's 11 years old, I still don't want to spoil it, where you find out why you've been doing all the things other characters have just been telling you to do. And I remember playing that and just going, oh, you know, I always do that in video games. If someone gives me a quest, I just go do it, because why wouldn't I? What else do I have to do? And it was just this really clever use of the medium that I thought was most effective in first person in a first-person shooter and with a silent protagonist like Gordon Freeman because I felt more connected with the character, I felt like it wasn't a character. I felt like it was me, and I think first-person shooters still have that potential. I just um, I miss seeing more creativity in that space.
0: Well, I think a lot of people are probably getting nostalgic for that golden age of first-person shooters. I mean, earlier on on today's show, we're talking about dusk. Uh, which Mm -hmm. is a a throwback shooter. I mean, there's been quite a few of these recently. I mean, do you think people are kind of getting a bit nostalgic for something from the mid-90s, whether it be the graphics or the level designs? or Do do you see that as well?
2: I I absolutely do see it. And I think probably, not to speak for all these people, but for myself, um, I am really nostalgic for level design. I think one issue with modern first-person shooters is they, they are so linear and driven by scripted events that levels kind of end up feeling like you're just you're on a roller coaster you're on rails you can't go anywhere the ride doesn't want to let you to go and one of the memes is you know comparing a a call of duty level which is just a few right angle turns with scripted event at every angle uh, compared to i think it's maybe doom e1 m2 map which is just sprawling i mean the interesting thing about doom is that the, the levels are huge, and you really don't have to do much exploring. You can just kind of pick up the key cards and go straight to the exit. But if you do explore, you'll find dangerous enemies and mobs of enemies, but exploring is usually worth your while because maybe you'll find you know, a plasma rifle or, or a rocket launcher several levels before you would have discovered them had you not explored. And um, I, th- I think definitely that, that type of level design is what people miss. But I think to, to return to it, I think that we need small teams who are who are willing to say, you know what, we're not going to use the, the most cutting edge tech and we might not sell 40 million copies, but we might sell 100,000 or 200,000 or 80,000 just enough for this to be financially viable and allow us to keep creating games. And I think they can do that by using older engines or maybe even building an engine of their own that is kind of representative of id tech one or two or of build because – being able to work with older tech and w- w- that, that allows for smaller teams and also more creativity more creativity, because you don't have uh, as much of the budget going into every single facet of the game. So I think that's, that's probably the key to bringing back that old school sprawling level design. I mean those games to me felt a lot like sandboxes but they, they just don't now because they're too expensive to make so you can't build as much real estate.
1: Well, your book is on Unbound at the moment, and it's Rocket Jump, Quake and the Golden Age of First-Person Shooters. And I've personally pledged for it, because I think it just looks so good that I want to read oh, it.
2: thank you very much.
1: And I love, you, I love your targets as well. You've got, like, co-op play and god mode and quad damage.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good. Could you tell us more about the book? Sure. Um, the book started as an article that grew into a book. I, um, I'm a freelance writer for shacknews.com, um, I've recently been christened the Shacknews long reads editor. So it's really my job to go out and write these long read, long form features that delve into the making of certain games and franchises and the culture of the eras in which they were made. And that's where Rocket Jump started. Rocket Jump went up uh, on Shacknews.com in uh, last December, uh, December fourth. And I wrote it, actually. All the research and interviewing took course over about five months, so it was a very, very quick production. Um, and later that week, just on social media, it kind of blew up. I was getting hundreds of likes and retweets, and you know, John Romero and John Carmack both liked it and retweeted it, and then I did interview them as well as uh, a dozen or so other folks from id for the book. And uh, through that, one of the people who contacted me to say he liked it was an editor from Unbound, and, and if you're unfamiliar with Unbound, they're a crowdfunding publisher slash platform. It's basically Kickstarter dedicated to books. And they contacted me and said, you know, this is a great article slash book you've written here and we'd love to to bring it to hardcover. So over over Christmas and most of January, we worked on uh, writing the copy for the, the crowdfunding campaign, setting the pledge level. So my wife, who's a videographer, shot the video that you see on the page when you visit it and uh, the response has been terrific so far. John Romero is a huge supporter of this. He he emailed me and I've worked with John on a lot of articles. He enjoys my work and I'm obviously a huge fan of his. And so he said, you know, let me know whatever I can do to help you promote this thing because I'd love to see it get made in in hardcover. So if um, anyone's interested, you can go to to Unbound right now and uh, there's um, an excerpt from the first chapter there. You can check out the crowdfunding video and all sorts of uh, fun information and, and of course it's not just on the the Quake franchise. I really go through the interviews I did. I take you inside kind of behind closed doors to learn about ID's culture uh, during the making of Quakes uh, one through three Quake Live and Quake Champions. But also I have these chapters that are called uh, pause screens and they are uh, interviews or oral histories or narrative style accounts of the making of other first person shooters. I talk about Half-Life. I talk about Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, Team Fortress, I have, I think the Team Fortress chapter is almost 30 or 40 pages of an oral history with the three guys who made it. So it was really my effort to cover as much ground as possible. Uh, there's also a chapter on Goldeneye 007 in there because I didn't want to uh, ignore console shooters. There's a lot of innovation in that space at the tail end of the 90s. So Rocket Jump has just been this huge labor of love, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited to see the reception to it on Unbound so far. Some of the interviews, just already fantastic. American McGee and just John
1: Carmack and Janelle Dequase and all that. It's just uh, great, the amount of people that you've got in it.
2: Oh, yeah. It it was so fun talking to everyone. That's one thing, you know, I've written um, a lot of books by this point. Actually, I'm kind of surprised when I stop to think about it, but books about Diablo, books about the Apple II era, and now Rocket Jump, and um, I love getting as many perspectives as possible because I love hearing these stories, but I also like to get as much detail as possible so that I can more firmly transport readers to this time and place. The reason I write these in a narrative style with with quotes from the interview sprinkled in is because I want people to feel like they're they're right there in these dingy offices or these big boardrooms as those games are being made and and huge, important historical moments are are happening. And um, uh, they're a lot of fun to write and, and hopefully fun to read as well.
0: Well, your book is called Rocket Jump. It's on Unbound now. Uh, We will put a link in this week's show notes if um, our audience want to come along and back this. I'd implore anyone that's got an interest in these classic FPS games because, I mean, looking at who you've got here, this looks like it is going to be the most comprehensive history of the first-person shooter genre that's ever been done.
2: Yeah, I mean, geez, John Romero, John Carmack, American McGee, Tim Willits, uh, Janelle Jacques, you know, so so many people gave of their time. Uh, Scott Miller, uh, founder of Apogee, co-founder of 3D Realms. Uh, the Team Fortress guys uh, like I said I really wanted to cover as much ground as possible and and I hope people enjoy the book everybody needs to back this I agree I
0: agree (laughs) well David it's been wonderful talking to you thank you so much for sharing your memories and we can't wait to read it thanks a lot for having me on guys
2: I really enjoyed it